feels good in here this morning. Man. Ah. Good morning, family. Also, sorry about the laptop. There was no ink in the printer. So I hope this isn't distracting. Um, I'm also trying to collect my marbles. Something messed me up uh, in the middle of worship earlier. So I'm still trying to get all the way here. And um, so we can get through a little sermon or something. Uh, Can you pray with me? God, here we are to listen, to learn, to give of our full selves, tired, weary, confused, stressed, heartbroken, excited, happy, joyful, somewhere in between, feeling all the things. And God, like someone said earlier in worship, we're not here to play any games. We need you. We're not here for the show. We're not here to put on a front. We need you. I need you. We are desperate to hear a word from you. So God, we know that you are already present in here. By your spirit, would you make us present? That we might see, that we might taste, that we might experience in our body and in our spirit, you. God, with the words of my mouth, And would the meditations of all our hearts here today, would they be pleasing? Would they be receptive to you? In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Actually, we didn't have a scripture reader, so I'm going to read it, which means y'all got to stand up for me, um, if you'd be willing. And for your hearing, we are going to be in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 23. Through 33. Hear now the word of God. The same day, some of the Sadducees came to him, saying there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies childless, his brother shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married, and then died childless, leaving the widow to his brother. And then the second one did the same, and so also the third, down all the way to the seventh. And last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection then, here's the question they ask, so whose wife of the seven will she be? For all of them had married her. Jesus answered them, listen to the response, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by your God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astounded by his teaching. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Y'all say thanks be to God. 
If he wants, you may be seated. You may be seated. So I'm I'm just curious, have, have any of you ever had those conversations where on the surface you're talking about one thing? Uh, but as the conversation goes, it becomes clear, it seems like there's something deeper at work here. So maybe you have, um, I don't know, like a partner or something. You get into a little fight or something, and you're like, I-, I hear that we're talking about dishes, but I don't know, what, what's really going on here? What are, what are you trying to say? Like, what are you really talking about? Like, is this about dishes? Is this something deeper? And it's clear that beneath the surface, there's something that's bugging them, and you have to kind of slow down. Or maybe you have kids, right? Kids. Kids often come with big emotions, big things, and you have to be like, I hear that, and also, it seems like there's something beneath this. What is really kind of going on? So we interrogate the question, but also we sense there's a person and a whole something behind the question. Is it really this, or is it something deeper? And so in the story today, we meet a group of people called who? The Sadducees. Hold on, let me find. It's hard with the laptop, y'all. And so they approach Jesus with what? A question. And it's kind of an interesting question, a fascinating question. If I'm honest, I've actually had almost verbatim a similar question for maybe like the first 26 years of my life. I'm 27, so I don't think it anymore. I'm more spiritually mature now. Um, But my kind of version of the question, you know, I wouldn't say I, I would ask about marriage, but maybe like even, I don't know, like a girlfriend or like a crush. And I'd be like, you know, I really do wonder if at the resurrection and at the culmination of all things, I do wonder, like, you know, will you get to hold hands with someone in heaven? I wonder if, like, you'll get to kiss. Or I wonder if, if, yeah, I wonder if you'll have, like, a partner. Is that going to be a thing at the resurrection? Also, y'all looking at me like you don't have these questions? (laughs) And that's fine. You guys are holier than me and um, meditating on the higher things, maybe. But that's where I was. And it's not necessarily a bad question, right? Not necessarily. And I've had some similar questions. So they're asking, so Moses, a guy dies. All the brothers, according to the Mosaic law, the law given to them through Moses, she's supposed to be passed down, right? And this time, right, it shows you also the kind of view they have of women, right? the property of the next man and the next. So at the resurrection, who's, whose wife is she going to be? Interesting except for the fact things get a little interesting when you learn about who the Sadducees were, right? Who are the Sadducees? So the Sadducees are the specific kind of sect of of high, high priests in the Second Temple um, Judaism time period, which is where Jesus lives. And and we don't have time for this, but think of the Sadducees um, as the highest of the high class. So they're actually way different than the Pharisees, and we often conflate them. And the New Testament writers often put them in the same group to pit them against Jesus, but they're actually really different. So the, the, the Sadducees are the highest of the high, they're high class, they're upper echelon, and they're in control of a few things. They have a lot of political power because they're in charge of how the temple runs. They're in charge of how the temple runs, and they also don't believe in the resurrection. That was in the beginning of our reading. They don't believe in the resurrection. Let this sink in. They don't believe in the resurrection, and they're asking Jesus about what is going to happen with marriage at the resurrection. Interesting. So interesting question by people who kind of maybe don't even have it within the parameters of possibility, an answer that Jesus might or might not give. Interesting. Interesting. 
So for them, no afterlife, no resurrection. That's out of the books for the Sadducees. Which means if we slow down, we realize that this high-class bureaucratic group of priests who have a very, very vested interest in maintaining the status quo, status quo, they don't actually believe in the possibility of the answer to the question they're asking. So we could spend a whole sermon kind of interrogating questions. And we could talk about the questions they ask and what it means for our faith. But I actually, this is what I want to do. Uh, I want us to lock in on the response that Jesus gives. Let's lock in on this response that Jesus gives. gives. Because I'm convinced that Jesus responds to these questions, which are really traps. And there's a trap before this story, and there's actually a trap after this story, too. To help us get down to the depths where we can step back and we can ask, wait, wait, wait. Kind of like with a kid who has a lot of emotions, and you know there's something behind it. Wait, wait, wait. What is this really about? Is this about marriage at the resurrection? Is this about getting to hold hands with someone in heaven? Or is there something behind it? And so, teacher, who will she be married to at the resurrection? Essentially, which of the seven brothers, right? Which of the seven brothers will she be married to? Jesus' response, you're wrong. You're wrong. And you're wrong on two counts. You're wrong for, you're wrong because you don't know the scripture. And you're wrong because you don't know the power of God. You're wrong because you don't know Scripture and you don't know the power of God. And see, this is ultimately the kind of stuff that gets Jesus ultimately executed, right? Think about it in, in the largest sense because he goes to all these people in authority and he tells them you don't know Scripture and you don't know the power of God. They don't understand their own Scripture and they don't know the first thing about the power of God. But y'all got to remember who the Sadducees are. These are, the ex- these are the equivalent of like the top scholars of the Scripture, and they were quite literally the fullest mediation and the fullest facilitation of the power of God. Because for them, where was the presence and the power of God? The temple. They're in charge of the temple. So you realize what Jesus is kind of saying here is it would be akin to, let's just say you have an exchange with Beyonce or something. And she, she poses a question to you, and you say you're wrong. And you're wrong, Beyonce, on two accounts. You can't sing, and you can't dance. And I don't really know how else to put it. Or, or it's kind of like, like if you go to Steph, it'd be like you have an exchange with Steph Curry. And you say, Steph, I hear you, but you're wrong. And you're wrong on two counts. You can't dribble, and you can't shoot the dang basketball either. You see, do you see how audacious it is what Jesus is actually saying to these people? and connects it to who these people are. They are in charge of the the temple, and these are experts. They are the top of the top in their tradition of the Mosaic law. Okay, so like what? Even, Even for Jesus, this feels a little unwarranted, or it feels a little excessive, right? It feels a little outlandish of Jesus to to kind of levy this kind of critique against the Sadducees, unless, unless, unless Jesus is responding to something deeper than the questions they're asking at face value. Unless Jesus is poking at something beneath and maybe behind the questions that they're asking. 
unless Jesus might be getting at something, nudging at something, putting his finger on something that's deeper than just the questions they're asking at face value. And I want to suggest this is exactly, exactly what Jesus is doing. He's responding to something the Sadducees haven't named in their questions, but that are nonetheless operative in who they are. So on the surface, and right, when we just read it, you might be like, this is a bizarre, kind of weird, I don't see the theological point of this passage. It seems like it's a question of marriage. We might be like, oh, this is, this is an interesting theology of marriage and the resurrection or something. And by the way, Jesus still technically offers an answer to the thing on the surface that they're asking, right? He says, no, folks will not be given in marriage. Instead, they'll be like angels. So in other words, all the deepest ecstasies and intimacies of our heart and all our deepest longings and all our deepest desires in the full communion of, with God and with land and with each other, in the end, we won't need sort of the partial signs and symbols that point to it, like marriage. That's what marriage is. Right, it's, it's sort of a foretaste covenantal relationship of what ultimately will be fulfilled in communion with God. So he sort of answers it. He's like, yeah, no, it's not going to be, uh, there won't be marriage. But Jesus seems to also be getting at something that is unnamed in the question. So church, I want to suggest that what Jesus is responding to has little to do with marriage. And I think that for Jesus, this exchange has everything to do with resurrection power. I think this text has everything to do with resurrection power. See, Jesus gets the questions they're asking, and he even gets that the reason they're asking these questions is not even a good reason. They're not even asking it in good faith. It's kind of a trap, actually. But still, knowing this, Jesus does what Jesus always does. And Jesus does for the Sadducees what I think Jesus does for us as well. That when posed with a question, either a question made in good faith or a question offered as a trap, that Jesus starts to press, not into just the questions themselves, but he presses into the assumptions that are behind the questions. Jesus starts to push up against all the parameters that are set up behind the questions. He starts to push up against the limitations and the assumptions and the parameters that we set for maybe the answer that could be given. And then that's what Jesus does. He draws out the person who's behind the question. What's this really about? Wait, wait, hold on. What's really going on here, Sadducees? What are we really trying to get at? And this is all about Jesus knowing that even though they are asking questions about marriage, what they're really unsure about and what they are really questioning is if there can be life after death. And what they're really unsure about, even if they aren't able to name it, is if there is such a power as resurrection power. Can there be an eternal God? Do you believe, can you believe, O oh Sadducee, that death is not the end? And so look at how, what he appeals to as he's answering. Have you not read what your God? Notice how he, he, in, he includes them in the fold. This is your God. Have you not read what God has said to you, the great I am? Your God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is not the God of the dead. This is the God of the living. The God of your forefathers is the God of the living. 
They are alive is the assumption in and with Christ. Your father, your forefathers, from within your tradition, the God you have is the God of life and death and life again. And I think this is, this is why I'm trying to sit on this phrase here that he says, Jesus is like, you don't know the scripture or the power of God because scriptures, and even in your scripture, because the Sadducees, oh, that's another thing. The Sadducees only sort of give uh, divine authority to the Torah, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And, and in that way, they really differ from the Pharisees who sort of have a bigger canon that includes the writings and the prophets. For the Sadducees, it's just the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And who does Jesus appeal to to make his claim here? People you can find in the first five books of the Bible. The forefathers, theirs. He's like, you don't know Scripture or the power of God because Scripture, your Scripture, reveals the God of the living. And you don't know the power of God because if you know the power of God, you would know that it's this kind of specific, unique, one-of-a-kind power. It's not the power you're used to. And maybe that's why you missed it. And it's not the kind of masculine power. It's not some kind of muscular power. It's not some kind of militaristic power. And it's not really the power that's high and mighty and crushes everything. And perhaps that's why you're missing it, Sadducees. But it's resurrection power. And that is the name for the power of God, specifically. I don't know if we want to put it this way, but the power of God, maybe we could say, has a name. Resurrection power. And it's the kind of power that submits to life, submits to death. I know we know this, but I'll just say it anyway. Resurrection is not the avoidance of death. How often do we spend so much time trying to avoid deaths of all kinds? And yet resurrection is a submission to life, a submission to death, and a submission and a victory over death that life might have the final word. And so I just wonder, I just wonder if this is what they're getting tripped up on, and I wonder if this is what we get tripped up on. That the power of God for them perhaps was in a building and it was located in the site of a specific location, or perhaps it was in the steeple, or perhaps it was in the building, or perhaps it was confined to a sacred text. Perhaps it really just is in the first five books. But it's not, it's this power we call resurrection power that somehow squeezes and gets life out of death, that gets strength out of weakness, that gets hope out of despair that somehow gets wholeness out of brokenness, that somehow derives beauty from the ashes, that somehow gets some joy out of mourning and sorrow, that somehow pulls love out of hatred, somehow that gets light out of darkness, that gets peace out of violence. And at the largest scale, life out of death, Life out of death. And so all of a sudden you realize that Jesus is giving them an answer bigger than the question they asked. Jesus is giving them an answer bigger than the question they asked for. 
And then he draws out the person, all the doubts, all the fears, all the unbelief of the person behind the question to whisper even to them with love. Could it be? Could it be that I am the eternal I am? Wasn't that what your God told your forefather? That I am the great I am. Not the I was. Not the I will be. The eternal present I am. I am the God of resurrection power. And so, if I'm honest, I thought it was at first pass. I thought it was about marriage. Or in my own, my own way. Maybe it was about holding hands in heaven. That'd be cool. And then God does what God always does, which is enlarges our hearts and enlarges our capacity for a deeper question and shows us that this is about resurrection power and the power that we so often misunderstand. And really, right, some of us have been in church our whole life and we still live like we don't believe in resurrection power. We really don't. And so often, and this is, this is an interesting point, like I, I do think often our questions to God even exist between the parameters of life and death. And we have limitations on the possibility for the way that God can answer our questions. And the parameters are between life and death. And you see categorically and inherently resurrection is always outside of and beyond life and death. It's something that has entered in death and through death and come out victorious the other side. So it's true. You will live, and you will die. And just like you already know, we know this intuitively. Some relationships will live, and some will die. Some of your career paths will live, and, and then they will die. Some of your hopes and dreams deferred, and will live, and will die. Some of what you yearn for most in life, will live and will die. The things you long for might live and die. But the God we have, I know I say that phrase so much, but it is the God we have, which is different from the God we often think we have. The God we have is the God who answers death. Can these dry bones live, Ezekiel said. Is there a balm in Gilead, Jeremiah said. Will I survive the trial, the prophet Habakkuk said. Will I live through the fire, Isaiah said. So I guess this is just my questioning and my wondering for us today is that I wonder if there's folks in here who have some questions for God. And questions not even that are asked as a trap. Not questions that are in bad faith, but are in earnest good faith. God, where the heck have you been? I'm trying my best here, God, and I'm drowning. God, why would this happen to me? God, this is too much for me to handle, and the grief is taking me over. God, how long? How long, God? God, I know you've called me to this, and I'm trying to be faithful to the call, but 
I'm just not seeing how this thing is going to play out. I see no viable pathway for me. God, I am not sure I am going to make it. Questions to God. And may I remind you and remind me that ours is a God of resurrection power. I know that seems so simple, and yet it is everything. A God of resurrection power. So some of you are asking questions that have parameters, that have a specific range of possibility for how God can answer. Is it too limited? Do you think God will answer in the way that you want God to answer, given the specific range of answers that you think possible? And so I just want to leave with two questions. Do you believe it? I feel like an old school preacher saying that. I like cringe almost at that. I'm like, how's that coming out? But do you believe it? Do you believe it that the God you have is the one who will always, 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 always pull life from death? Hmm? Do you believe it? That there are lifeless things that can be made alive again in your life, in your body, in your world, in our culture, in our church life, in our neighborhood, Dr. Shonda. Do you believe it? That God can take things that are dilapidated and destroyed and destructive and contaminated and hurting and oppressive. That God can take crumbling things and failing things. Do you believe it? That God can take hurting things and wounded things, and vulnerable things, and fragile things, and decaying things, and rotten things, and make something beautiful, alive, vibrant, a blessing. So that's the first question. Do you believe it? And the second question is, it feels old school, too. Will you live like it? Will you live like it? Will you live like love can raise things from the dead? Will you go throughout your day tomorrow like that? Do you live like resurrection power is for you and for us and for this neighborhood and for the world? And would you know, can you know beyond just me, someone telling you it, but can you know for yourself by experience that resurrection is not just a probability or a potentiality or a possibility? Resurrection for you and for me and for us is a promise. Will you live like it? There's an amazing theologian. He was, he was, a, he was a gay Episcopalian man, Episcopalian man from like, in like the 1950s. And he wasn't even an ordained priest or anything, but he was a student and a brilliant thinker of theology. And he has this book called Instead of Death. And he almost single-handedly brings the idea of resurrection back into our, our common theology. And he makes the case that if it's true that death 
And death-dealing work is sort of always at work in the world through our systems and structures and through the way that we live. If death is always being dealt out and if that we're always being students of death and purveyors of death, that then our main ethic, our main practice as Christians must be an ethic of resurrection. That if it's true that death is so powerful as a principality and power in our world. And y'all, we've got to live with an ethic of resurrection. It must be the way, it must structure the way that we live. That God is able, beyond all the, all the possibility and plausibility we think is possible, that God will make something beautiful out of it. So I wonder if you believe that. So simple, but so hard. You believe it, and will you live it? Will you live like it? Will you live like, like love can raise dead things? That is what Ezekiel, that is what Jeremiah, that is what Habakkuk, that is what the forefathers, that is what Esther, that is what Naomi, that is what Sarah, that is what everyone in the cloud of witnesses says. God, are you able? Yes. Resurrection power is the name of the power that the Sadducees misunderstand and that we misunderstand all the time. Resurrection power. So that's it. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? And will you live like you know it's true? Will it sink into the fibers of your being? So when you look at folks today, when you interact with people today, and you make eye contact with people today, that you would know that it's resurrection power at work in you and at work in the world. Pray with me. God, we come to you with so many questions, good ones, bad ones, silly ones, deep ones, shallow ones. And it seems like what you always do is you draw out the person behind the questions and where we stand and what we're insecure about and what we're very shaky about and what we're unsure about. And you kind of cut to the core Is it possible that we might live after death in spite of all we've faced, in spite of everything you've been through? Is healing and wholeness and life again possible? Is it? So God, we thank you that you engage us for the questions we ask and the questions we can't even name. And God, we thank you that you are a God of life beyond death, a life instead of death, that your yes to us and that your yes to the world is a no to the power of death, is a no to sin, is a no to everything that ails us, is a no to everything that causes wounds. And your yes is a yes to us and your yes is a yes to the world. And the name for that power is resurrection power. 
in the name of the God who brings dead things to life. Amen. However you receive, would you get into that posture? Whatever that looks like. But you are receiving something. You are being sent with something. Friends, beloved church, there is no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain God will not climb up. Coming after you, and there's no wall that God will not kick down. No lie that God will not tear down. Coming after you. So, in the words of Paul, we are hard pressed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And so we carry around in our bodies death so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death. So then death is at work in us. But life, but life is at work in you. Friends, go today. Go this week. Go. Go, go, go. Be sent knowing that you are filled with the power of God to bring dead things to life. That power is not just a possibility. That is a promise given to you. So go, accepting, participating, knowing that in your bones. Go in peace. Go in the power of the resurrection. And God's people said, Amen.